As I stand before you this morning, I'd like to begin with a word or two of appreciation. This congregation, as you supported that gospel meeting at Buffalo Valley, so thankful for not only your kind thoughts and prayers, but your presence at a number of those services, and so many of you were so supportive of that. Again, many appreciations to you for that. In addition to Jonathan and the others who helped carry out those services here, so many fine comments about just how powerful and how good everything was, and I certainly know that to be true. It is good to be back with you today, but in many ways, short-lived in the following sense. A gospel meeting beginning next Sunday at the Spencer Church of Christ, and yours truly has been invited to, to be the speaker for that. So we'll be away next Sunday and that Wednesday as well. But we would also ask you to keep that gospel meeting, if you would, in your prayers, there in the heart of Spencer, Tennessee, in Van Buren County. The lesson today in many ways, is in light of next Sunday. As you perhaps already know, next Sunday is Father's Day. And I thought that this lesson, it would be a timely one for you and me to consider the qualities of a godly father. The Word of God not only, of course, touches the aspects and the conduct in the life of a mother, but also that of a father. And all of us who are men can be benefited certainly by this. And in many ways, the spotlight, though, will be cast on those who are fathers. As you think about that, this opening slide is in some ways an introductory one. It helps you and me to consider the following. God made males and females, only two genders He fashioned. And as He did that, He gave each one the qualities, the characteristics, and the traits that would be most needful for that one to carry out the duties and obligations of life. May I say, fathers, that God has equipped us with the capabilities to do that which He would ask of us. It's not beyond us. It's not above us. With that in mind, the bottom of that slide asks us to think a little bit about Luke chapter 15. I hope you still have your Bible open to that location. We're going to cast almost exclusively the spotlight of the lesson today on it. The next slide, in fact, takes us to that lesson text rather immediately. We know it well, this record, this parable of the prodigal son. But quite frankly, may we keep in mind there are three principal characters involved. There is the father, there's the elder son, and there's also the younger son. Maybe we more often tend to think of the younger son. However, would you begin in verse number 11 as we look with some care at the nature of this parable. And he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and despair, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son." Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, 
and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should, take, that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead, and is alive again, and was lost and is found." Many things about a father, it seems to me, could well be appreciated based on this text we've just read together. And with it, let's begin to notice several of these qualities. The next slide begins with number one. You and I noticed in verse number 12 as we read this that a godly father, the father presented in this passage, is one who had an ear to listen. Let's develop it like this. Several times in this passage, this father listened to his sons. He listened to the younger son when that younger son made a request to give me that which is my portion. He also listened, though, to the elder son when that elder son entered into conversation with him. Isn't it amazing as you think about that which a godly father then would always be apt to do? He doesn't shut off his children. He doesn't, in fact, maintain an overly excessive distance to them. A principle of a Christian in James 1 verse 19 is this, Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. A godly father then will have an ear to appreciate an opportunity that he may have to assist, to help, to look upon the problems and issues of the ch children's lives. One of the next verses I would ask you to consider, Have you ever thought about Noah? In Genesis chapter 6, we have the record of a man. He lived in a wicked world, a world that was overwhelmed in unrighteousness and iniquity. And yet of those eight that were saved, of those eight that in fact found pleasure and success with God, there was of course Noah, but what about his three sons? Have you ever thought about the fact that Noah only had three sons and they were all faithful Christians? I have no doubt that over the course of time, many conversations, many teaching opportunities, and Noah listened to them. And of course, they respected and listened to him as well. Isn't it interesting in Colossians 3.21 that all of us as fathers are told this, Do not discourage your children. 
One of the quickest ways you and I as a father can discourage them is don't listen to them. Ignore them. Pretend, if you please, that you and they are in much different circumstances of life and that there's no interaction at all. That's not the way to lead them to Jesus. That's not the way to lead them into being the proper example in life. Lesson number one, this father was a man who listened. What about number two? You'll notice that this father, in verse number 12, the following thing is said, And he divided unto them his living. Now, isn't it true that this father, as he listened to this request of the son, Give me that portion which falleth to me. This father had made arrangements. He understood that there was a necessary division of his things so that each of the sons got his part. He didn't give everything to the older one, nor did he give everything to the younger one. There was a division. You'll notice the son never made the claim that dad was unfair. The older son didn't either. The fact is, when it came to these kind of matters, an interesting statement could be concluded. Apparently that father was a man respected for fairness, for equity, for justness. Let's develop that point under number two. This behavior of a father leads all of us as fathers to think about that which our children see in us. As they mature and as they grow, their first experience with justice likely comes through us dads. How does dad behave when I do wrong? How does he react when I choose to do that which he's told me not to do? Fairness is something that invites us to be true to what we've said. If we've promised punishment, let's follow through with it. If we've promised a spanking, let's make sure to do it. We need to be fair about this. If that child begins to appreciate that dad won't keep his word, he says it, but it's all gruff and there's no action behind it, that likely is not going to go well when that child becomes a teenager. In fairness, isn't it interesting to see how fairness develops here? In 2 Corinthians 8.21, there's an admonition given to all Christians, and hence it certainly would apply to a godly father. All of us are to strive to make sure that everything is done honorably. I like that word, don't you? Honorably. When we behave in a way that's fair, that's honorable. That's the right thing to do. That's what God would have us to do. Isn't He, as our Father, a man of fairness and honor? God always does what's right, Genesis 18.21. In fact, verses 21 to 25 of that chapter describe that beautiful attribute of God, our Father. Let's add to that the following. In 1 Timothy 5.21, in the confine of the church, the following statement was demanded, Timothy, don't ever let anything be done with partiality. May I say that as a godly father, you and I should take that with a strong element of concern. If our children perceive in us partiality, he loves that son or that sister more than he loves me, that again likely is not going to go well. It'll lead to division in a family schism or perhaps even a sense, a very strong sense of distance. A father shouldn't want that. One final thing in those comments as we consider this second point. This father, as he highlighted the matter of fairness, 
Fathers, as you and I add to that concept, may I invite us to note this. Sometimes I suppose we dads can be so strict or so demanding that we almost demand of our children what's impossible. May we never do that. They are human. They're going to make their mistakes and they're perhaps on many occasions going to fail to live up to our expectations. But as we do that, may we never expect of them what's impossible. May we never demand they go beyond what their abilities are. In fact, isn't it interesting that God never asks of us what's impossible? He never demands of us what we cannot do. But what He demands of us is what He has equipped us to be able to do. This Father has illustrated to us a powerful attribute of fairness. What about number three? What else might we learn from this Father? It's also true that something, it seems to me, in verse thir- verses 13 and 14 are very, very strong. Let's read them again. And not many days after, did you notice? Once Dad divided to this son that which he thought was coming to him, he didn't tarry very long. Not many days after, it says, the younger son gathered all his things together, and he took his journey into a far country. And there he wasted his substance with riotous living. Now, we all know how the human frame and character is. It's not that the son decided to do this on the spur of the moment. No doubt he had had for a long time plans and desires and considerations such that he thought what was in the far country was enticing. And it was attractive. And it was fun. And I'd like to have a part of it. And so, when finally the monetary amount from Dad came forth, he soon was ready to do this. Point number three is this. There are some things Dad just won't tolerate. What the son wanted to do couldn't be done in Dad's house. The kind of things the son wanted, simply Dad wouldn't tolerate. And so he had to go to the far country to do it. To the far country to, in fact, be involved in it. Lest you and I develop that like this. One must appreciate that as the father, he is the ruler, the head of that household, and there are certain things dad shouldn't tolerate. Certain kind of behavior of the son or of the daughter of the children that just won't happen in this house. Why? Because dad said so. And that's all the reason you ever need. Certain kinds of things dad just simply won't let happen. May I say that should be true of sin. No father should let the children behave in a habitual life of sin in his household and tolerate it. This ought to be a house that lifts high the banner of truth and rightness and the things of God. And dad just won't permit this. A godly father would behave like that. You'll notice here the son had to go to a far country to do what he wanted to do. Dad wouldn't have any of it. You'll notice one final thing about that. Notice the descriptions about what the son did when he got to the far country. Could I emphasize the wording? It says he wasted. How long did it take dad to accumulate what he gave to the son? We don't know. But the son wasted it. And how did he waste it? It says with riotous living. That word riotous has behind it the thought of the very things you and I would expect. 
not only living wastefully and not only living with prodigality, but living in a way that was sinful and living in a way that was inappropriate. In fact, isn't it interesting that later the elder brother would say concerning his brother, he's been with harlots. Now, if the elder brother was telling the truth, this younger son had been with prostitutes. We begin to see what some of the things may have been that he was doing. Dad wouldn't tolerate that. As you and I add to that, consider this. Doesn't it highlight then that there is an attribute of obedience that must be true? Children, honor your father and mother. Obey them. Dad has rules and laws, and a godly father always will. He won't just let children do what they want when they want the way they want. He knows that isn't good for them. He knows that will not make of them proper citizens and those with an interest in things of God. Point number four. What else do you appreciate about this man as a godly father? What about this one? There comes a time when a child, as he grows... He reaches a point where a measure of independence must be allowed of him. You notice a godly father understands when that arrives. Oh, it's true when children are very small, they can't make wise decisions for themselves then. Dad and mom need to do it. But there comes a time when, after an appreciation of skill and time and experience, a father will allow his children a measure of independence and allow them to make some decisions even if it's the wrong ones. Have you ever thought what this father must have felt? The son's request apparently was reasonable. It's time to divide our things. This one had reached a point of independence, and Dad gave him this amount of money, all the while, no doubt, knowing, knowing that the son was going to waste it, or at least use it in a way that wasn't good. I wonder how heartbroken the father was. He knew the son was making a foolish choice. He knew the son was making a bad decision. But nonetheless, he knew that perhaps through the crucible of this means, the son would in the finality be a better man. Whatever might be said of that, he allowed him to make the choice. A wise father will also realize that such a thing must be true. Let's develop it like this. There are many times that decisions in life are foolish. No doubt the father knew this was one by the son. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Can you just imagine the excitement that must have been in the heart of that young son? I'm finally going to get to go and do all these things I've heard about. My friends have talked about it. Others have shared concerning it. And I can't wait to be a part of it. I could only imagine the proverbial tear streaming down the face of dad knowing where the son was headed and what he was going to do. But the father knew that when they reach that age and you force them and you restrain them too much, you're only likely going to drive them further from you. He knew the time had come and he allowed the son to make the mistake. You'll notice in Galatians 6 verses 7 and 8, one thing you and I can readily appreciate is this. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Dad knew that these wild oats the son was going to sow, they weren't going to turn out good. But he had to let the son make the choice. 
today, when you and I think about our family reaching that stage, it's always our hope, our children, we will have reared them in a way that they won't want to go to a little far country. Pray about your children. Pray that he or she will never want to go to the far country because what takes place there is never, ever good. The people that are there aren't good. The associations that take place there aren't good. May you always pray that your children are strong enough that even when those temptations do come and others entice them to go, may their visit there at most be brief so they come back home. Let's close that point with this one. The choices that you and I make, in fact, this idea really rests in us the thought about our Heavenly Father. Does God allow us to make mistakes? He did not make us as robots. If you and I want to choose foolishly, He will allow it. If you and I want to choose in such a sorry way, He will allow it. Aren't we told in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 11 and 12, that He will even let us be deceived if we, in foolishness, pursue it? The fact is, there's coming a day of judgment, and we're going to stand before His presence, and we're going to be judged based on what we did. If we made bad choices... They're going to be made to bear that day if we haven't been forgiven of them. As you think about all these principles, isn't it amazing what we can learn about the attributes of a godly father? How about number five? You'll notice this particular saga continues, and our fifth point is this one. There's something rather remarkable asserted in verse 20. It says, And he arose and came to his father. This son had realized just what the far country can bring. Oh, while he had funds and money, it appeared to be going well, but then a famine came into that land and he had to spend all he had. He joined himself to a citizen of that country and found himself feeding pigs. Now, for you and me today, we don't think much about feeding pigs. In fact, we may often have done it. But for a Jew, that was unthinkable. For someone schooled in the book of Leviticus, that was simply beyond the bounds of appreciation. He had stooped to this point. But verse 20 says, He did come to his dad and he said, I've sinned. Maybe a different lesson for a different time might be the qualities of the son. But the son admitted, Dad, I have sinned. I should never have gone to the far country and I should never have wasted what you gave me, but I did it. And verse 20 says, when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. Dad saw him from a distance. And the next three words are these, and had compassion. Dad didn't run in the house and force the son to beg. Dad didn't run in the house hiding himself, intending to force the son. Rather, he ran and showed compassion to him. Let's develop this point, point number five. I wonder how often that father had prayed for the well-being of his son. I wonder how often the father had longed and yearned to wonder how, how his boy was doing. Since he ran from a far distance when he saw him, one can't help but conclude the father had often felt the pangs of compassion, the yearning of concern for how his child was doing. It doesn't matter how old a boy or a girl becomes. As they become a man or a woman, a father 
will never stop loving them. A father will never stop having compassion for their well-being, will never stop having a concern that all is well with them. That certainly is a true statement. I suppose we often think about a mother that way, but it's also true of a father. May I ask you to consider Job 1 verse 5. As the book of Job begins, of course, all is so rosy and well. Here is a man who has such concern for his children. Job, of course, was righteous and faithful, but he wanted them to be. And he offered sacrifices on their behalf. Now, not in place of theirs, of course, but beseeching God for the things of his family. Fathers, do you pray for your children? Do you pray for them by name? When you approach the God of heaven, do you thank God for them? Do you ask God to bless them? Do you, in fact, beseech God to surround them with security and peacefulness and safety so that they will be led in the way that they should? Job, it seems, was very mindful of his children. May you and I as a godly father be. That compassion perhaps emanates in ways like this. In Psalm 112 we have a rather dramatic presentation. And as you read through the fullness of that psalm, you'll notice a number of things. And one of them is the concern and compassion that a father will have for his children. To that, we might add 1 Peter 3 verse 8. In the heart of the New Testament, a statement being made there about the very topic before us at this time. So far as we've looked at these five elements, let's come to number 6. In many ways, these two come together, but what about forgiveness? Verse number 20 again says, "...had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him." In the Middle East, you and I know that the kiss is a rather favorite form of greeting. They'll place a kiss, of course, on the cheek. Even two men may do that. And of course, it's not an inappropriate thing. It's not a sexual kind of matter. It's just a form of greeting in that part of the world. Here, this father, when he saw the son, he ran to him. There was an eagerness and an excitement in his demeanor. He couldn't wait to get where he was. He ran and thus, and in so doing, you'll notice it says, he fell on his neck. Oh, the happiness that filled his heart the forgiveness with respect to apparently what it was the son had done. Now, maybe dad didn't know all the details of what the son had committed. Maybe over time, though, he had heard of some of them. This much is now clear. There is a very powerful attribute of forgiveness. For note verse 22, The father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe. It's not that this son has forfeited the right to be my son. Bring out the best robe, his robe, a robe that identifies him as a part of my family. Next point. It says, bring the ring and put it on his hand. The families, of course, of that part of the world often had an identifying insignia, a ring that would identify this family. Bring the ring and put it back on him. Now, while he was away in the far country, he didn't have that ring. He had distanced himself from what this family was and stood for. Bring the ring back. Finally, put shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. 
it's time to celebrate. Don't you hear in that the tone of forgiveness? This son had made a mistake. There's no doubt about it. In fact, he had sinned. There's no doubt about it. And yet the father, on the repentance of the son, was more than honored to extend forgiveness. May I say, as fathers, we too must do this. Our children are going to make mistakes. There will be times that they will do things they shouldn't. They will fail to do things they should. And when they do these things, and punishment is properly extended, if they repent, may we be quick to forgive them. Don't hold a grudge over them. Don't hold that against them in a permanent way. We need to forgive them for those mistakes. Now, you'll notice this point in Psalm 15. As a description is therein given of those who are pleasing before God, one of them is those who don't hold contempt. Fathers, we shouldn't do that. One final point might be Luke 17, 3, a commandment that the God of heaven has given to all of us, and hence it would certainly include a father. If one repents, forgive him. That includes our children. Now, might we say, if that child won't repent, if that child maintains a course of, shall we say, sinfulness, disobedience, if you please, then we might have a hard time dealing with that. But if that child repents, if that child extends this air of correctness and sorrowfulness, may we be quick to have an air of forgiveness. What about point number seven? What else might we learn from this father of Luke chapter 15? Later on, we find in the statements the following matters that it seems are so very telling. Again, you'll notice something about the attribute of love. It's easy to appreciate commandments that command a mother to love her children. And although there's not an explicit statement in Scripture commanding us fathers of that, there's no doubt it happens. Our children, of course, are of our loins. They're our offspring. We love them. We don't want bad things for them, and we certainly don't want matters that will work to their ill. Did you notice some of those descriptions we just made? Inasmuch as this father was so happy when his son came home, we each perhaps can picture it. How long had the son been gone? We don't know. What specific far country had he been to? We don't know. But we do know this, the father was anxious for his return. Fathers, have you had a child who perhaps has wandered in some way, and when he came home, how happy were you? How excited were you? How thrilled in heart were you? Words almost fail to describe it. And yet, the father's actions here tell the tale. He ran to him. You can only imagine, was the father out working in the fields when he saw him? Was the father on the porch? We don't know. But he ran to meet him. The Father was motivated by love. Our Heavenly Father is too, you know. And you and I can appreciate that as a godly father, we must also be motivated in that way. Consider the love of God in that refrain. In Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39, Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Yea, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. 
Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that's an extensive listing, and none of those things can separate us from the love of God. Now that's the love of a father, isn't it? That's the love of our Heavenly Father. As you and I add to that one final thought, point number eight. One thing about this Father that we also must quickly add, and it's the one that's seen near the close of the chapter. I've entitled it, An Appreciation of Proper Values and Priority. You noticed it, didn't you, that when the older son came in from the field... He heard music and dancing, and when he was told what was going on, he was angry. He wasn't at all happy, at least at that moment, that his brother had come home. He had no concern or compassion for him like Dad did. But that conversation that ensued, the older son said, Dad, I've always been here, and you've never given me a fatted calf, and you've never allowed me to invite my friends to make merry. I suspect the son was exaggerating quite noticeably. But it's the father's reply in verse number 31. Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead. The father had proper values. This younger son, dad never approved what he did in the far country. Dad never gave credence to what he was doing in that place, but to the older son he said, Don't you understand? He was lost. He was dead. And now he's home and he's safe and he's sound. It's appropriate that we celebrate. It's appropriate that he is now with us. The father had proper values and a proper set of priorities, and a godly father will always do that. When it comes to the attributes and the behavior of the family, dad puts higher priority things first. Let's make sure this is done first. That can be done later when the greater priority things are finished. Maybe you remember your father, your grandfather always saying, make sure that's done first, for that, of course, is more critical. It's more crucial. These other things can wait. A godly father will always do that. As you and I add to those things... Isn't it true that that same principle, of course, applies to the Christian life? You and I are taught that we must seek first the kingdom of God, and a godly father will always place those things top priority. Nothing will ever be allowed to interfere with services of the church. Nothing will ever be allowed to interfere with the proper attributes concerning service to God first. This father has taught us a lot this morning. I hope all of us as a father, and of course, ladies, you can be encouraged as well. But these things bring us to a point of conclusion. And let's do that in the following way. May I say to each of us, we should be thankful for a godly father. Thankful that he does have the attributes we've learned about today. And that he does instill within us these things that are so good. Surely we might add the following. This parable, this particular listing, is one from which so many lessons could aptly come. We've looked at the Father today. As you and I examine ourselves, 
Fathers, how are we doing? Oh, I know we aren't perfect either, and maybe we make statements or we make things that often ought not be done. But as you strive to use an example such as this one, to be a father as you should be, may we be urgent and may we strive to a level like we've described this morning. If there would be anyone in this audience today who isn't living as you should, maybe you've never become a Christian. You have never had your sins washed away in baptism. Don't you realize what you're missing? Jesus came, dying on the cross and shedding His blood. He did that, putting in place a plan of salvation. That plan of salvation is as follows. You must believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, John 8, 24. You must repent of your sins, commanded in Luke 13, 5. You must confess with your mouth the name of Jesus, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. And you must be baptized for the remission of your sins, Acts 2, 38. It's a time of celebration, a moment of jubilation. And we'd be honored to, in fact, participate in that with you today. If you have become a Christian, though, but you haven't lived faithfully, you haven't lived honorably, you haven't lived appropriately, you realize a lesson like this calls one and all back to the ideal that the Bible describes. If you've committed sins in a public way, don't you want to confess them so that others know of your repentance? That's commanded, you see, in James 5, verse 16. If we could help you in doing that today by praying to God on your behalf, we'd be delighted to do it. This song of encouragement has been selected. If at this moment we could be of assistance to anyone, we would urge you to come and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.